We pray that you would walk along beside us, counsel us, every heart, right where it is, to be ministered to, to be led into truth, brought closer to Christ, and grow up into Him who is the head, Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd. Achieve that this morning for your glory and for our joy, we pray. Amen. Acts 6, 1-7. to As a banner over this text today, a little title helps us to really grasp the point, And that is kingdom advance. Kingdom advance through intentional unity. Kingdom advance through intentional unity. Unity is never, ever, ever purposeless. Unity is always intentional. Unity is intentional. It's on purpose. The narrative of Acts... It's a historical account of the advance of the gospel of the kingdom from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we're going to end off in Acts 28. And and Pastor Jim made mention of this a a couple weeks ago when he preached, when he said we're going to end in Acts 29. I don't know how many of you guys listened to that carefully and thought, wait a second, there is not an Acts 29. You're right. But we're going to preach on Acts 29. You're like, whoa, just went into heresy. Church, this is a different animal. What's wrong? It's because Acts is a narrative. It's a historical account. It's a historical narrative of the advance of the kingdom of God by the work of the Spirit through the disciples, making disciples in domains of society, and the church being multiplied everywhere the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed. And in this narrative, we're going to end off with Paul in prison. But it's not the end of the story because the narrative continues. It pushes forward. Because what we're going to find out is this Paul writes more letters. Prison isn't the end for him. He gets released and he goes on and makes more disciples. And more disciples plant churches. So this historical narrative, this storytelling of the historical facts of the advance of God's kingdom give us what we talked about last week last week by way of introduction testimonies the stories of the Lord's grace that teach us instruct us help us to walk in the way of God's kingdom because we look at them and we see examples of how we should live of what we should do and today's passage is no different acts 6 1 to 7 and, and, and listen, I'm, what I'm about to say here is, is, is debatable, okay? It is debatable. So, track with me for just a second. It's less about the establishment of an office of the church, particularly deacon ministries. As a matter of fact, I would go so far as to say, Acts 6, and this is the debatable part, Acts 6, 1-7 to has nothing to do with deacon ministry at all. It is not about the establishing of deacons. Paul will give us that instruction later. This passage is about how the church encountered challenge associated with growth, the growth of the kingdom. And how the Spirit moved in power to build unity through their intentionality so that the work would keep advancing. Because we've seen already in the narrative, the powerful gospel of the kingdom transforms individuals. He puts His Spirit in them and empowers them. They make disciples. They encounter opposition. They minister to one another. They encounter opposition. They minister to one another. And unity is attacked. On purpose. By individuals. And death is injected. 
And death happens. And challenge is made. God's gracious. He rescues people. He saves His people. He builds His church. Opposition is encountered. But God is gracious. He rescues. And these testimonies teach us how to walk. And the point of Acts 6, 1-7 is not deacons, but about the work of intentionally preserving unity when a challenge arises. This passage is all about the intentional preservation of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So let's take a look at Acts 6, 1-7 and see how the church met this threat to its unity with some very strong intentionality. And let's say this to you. It will require intentionality for us to stay in unity. It is not accidental. And, and I want you to hear this. Don't misunderstand what I'm about to say to you. It is not a mystical work of the Spirit in spite of you. It is a work of the Spirit of God in you through your intentionality of obeying the gospel of the kingdom and all its practices. Make sense? So there is something for us to do here. Not just glean and go, mm-hmm, you know, and do the which good holy, holy grunt away. It's a good Baptist amen. But there's action for us here to intentionally preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace because the gospel will ride on the back of our love for one another and our unity in the faith. Okay? So let's take a look at how the church met this threat to unity with some intentionality. Acts 6, 1-7. Now... Right? This is on the back side of what we looked at last week as the apostles were arrested and freed. And the gospel work continued to go forward in spite of the opposition. Now in these days, same time period, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles. And they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So let's make our observations, and let's make our conclusions on what we're going to do with these observations. Observation number one, what, is it, what do we see? What does it mean? Verse one, growth can increase complaining. Growth can increase complaining. One of the great things about our fellowship is God does amazing things through small vehicles. The work that this fellowship does, I think membership-wise, we're just under 300 people. 
And obviously, summertime attendance doesn't reflect that. We have two campuses, right? So we have, we have room for growth, and that was on purpose. But this church of nearly 300 people, when everybody's here, we're full, right? But that's still a small fellowship. This fellowship does more than most thousand-member congregations with less money. Now, number one, that's not because we're great. That's because Jesus is big. The gospel is powerful, and he does powerful work when people submit to him and obey. Okay? It's all on Jesus. However, God is growing the influence of this fellowship. And lest we think more highly of ourselves than we should, we must remember that growth can increase complaining. Notice here. Now, in these days, when the disciples were what? Increasing in number. They were increasing numerically. The church was growing numerically. Their influence was growing. A complaint arose. The kingdom of God is increasing in spite of the persecution that's coming upon them. God is building His church. And the disciples' response to this persecution is rich because they continue to preach the gospel and make disciples. And what we discover here, that an increase in saints does not equal more holiness. I say this to couples when we do their premarital counseling. Sinner plus sinner does not equal less sin. See this beautiful, oh, we're going to get married and it's going to be great and I'm never going to sin again. And No, sin just multiplied in your house. Sinner plus sinner does not equal less sin. Growth in the kingdom of God does not equal less sin. It multiplies sinful flesh, selfishness, self-centeredness, and desire for its own thing in such a way that often unless Unity is intentional. It will blow up on you. My throat's itchy, so I'm going to drink a little bit along the way. It's coffee. (laughs) Coffee. The fact that some of you laughed makes me nervous at what you think of me. (laughs) An increase in saints in the kingdom with sinful tendencies does not decrease the proponent to sin. As a matter of fact, it will increase it. This word here, complaint, is an important word. Because it's not a benign word. It's a word that quite literally means to grumble against under cover. So as the kingdom of God is growing, all is not well on the inside. Because there has been an undercurrent of grumbling against that has begun to grow. So, growth can increase opportunities for murmuring. Situations where growth happens often provide opportunity for grumblers and malcontents to murmur. How it is handled is vital. So what do we do with this little bit of information right out of verse 1? I mean, we start off, the kingdom of God's increasing, people coming into the kingdom, but there's a complaint. What do we do with this? One, expect any growth to create opportunities for complaint. One of the first things we recognized early in the life of our church, we're working on year 14. 
was that people wanted to grumble against global work. Already at the other campus, new people coming into the life of Three Rivers are going, are, are going kind of funky against working in our people group. Why? Wow, that's crazy. Already, already. And what we must remember is growth does not equal less sin. It's going to mean opportunities for sin to infect and for division to happen. Complaining against people, complaining against vision, complaining just because some people are complainers. So expect that. Number two, expect, however, to handle complaints appropriately as the church did in Acts 6, 1 to 7. Now, we're going to continue to unpack this. We're going to get into this a little bit. Expect to handle complaining appropriately. We're going to deal with that in just a minute, so hang on to that thought. Number three, never allow complaining to advance. Put a sword in it instantly. Hear me? Never allow complaining to advance. Put a sword in it instantly. Because complaining, this word complaint, as it's used, means to grumble against undercurrent, means that there are things going under the current being subversive. And if it's subversive, it's not submissive to God's authority. If it's not submissive to God's authority, it's satanic. Make sense? If God is sovereign, He puts authority over His people. Whether we like it or not, He works through authority. When we don't submit to that, we are being subversive agents of the kingdom of darkness, bringing disunity to what was unified, and we end up cutting, in the old saying, our nose off despite our face. There's never anything good that comes from breaking up good things. Does that make sense? And so when complaining arises, put a sword in it. Complaining has nothing to do with truth. Rather, most complaining has something to do with druthers or opinions or selfish desires. If there's a real issue, if it's an issue of truth, if someone's breaking a commandment, violating the very nature and character of God, Scripture gives us outright instructions on handling that and principles for handling even nonsense issues. Don't allow complaining to advance. And by the way, it's every Christian's responsibility to not allow complaining to advance, not just the pastors. When you hear complaining, it's not your job to run to your pastor and go, hey, they're complaining, do something about it. You're a spirit-filled saint too. Put a sword in it, it's your job. Or you're being a coward. Deal with it. Right? Because unity is key to the proclamation of the gospel globally. Our being together, our loving one another, our advancing the mission under the banner of Jesus, unified, is powerful. It will not advance divided. Observation number two. I'll hold up three fingers. Two. Observation two. You're like, you sure that's coffee under there? I'm not real sure. Yep, it's coffee. Observation two. What do we see? What does it mean? The problem of Acts 6, 1 to 7 was legitimate. The Hellenists being overlooked, it's a legitimate problem. But the complaining is not legitimate. So I want to make sure we hear this. The problem was legitimate, the complaining was not. Make sense? The Hellenist widows are being overlooked, while the Hebrew widows are being supplied for. 
Verse 1, on these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What we know is because of their culture, their heritage, Judaism in particular, widows were cared for practically. Matter of fact, Paul gives us very practical instructions on that in 1 Timothy. James tells us, pure and undefiled religions care for the orphan and the widow and visit them in their affliction. So they took that very seriously. And so somehow, some way, the widows are being cared for. That is, widows who don't have anybody else to care for them. They're truly alone. There's no other way, no other option. They're left like Naomi. And so they need help. And so they are being cared for. Who's caring for them? The text doesn't say. But they are being taken care of. And in this instance, the Hellenists are being overlooked in favor of the Hebrew widows. Now, what's interesting here is, this is vital, because this is a church truly brought together in some amazing unity. Number one, Hellenists. Hellenists, now I'm going to give you jolly language here, okay? Just teach intertestamental history to ninth graders as they, um, uh, tenth graders as they're coming into New Testament survey. And you're like, what is intertestamental history? Well, it's the history between the Testaments, right? That your Bible doesn't speak to. Because it speaks to some important cultural issues that inform how you read the New Testament. Okay? Make sense? Hellenists were Jews who were Greekified. Hellenization is the Greek, this is jolly language. The Greekification of people. Common language. Koine Greek. Common Greek. Simple Greek language, which your New Testament is written in. Koine Greek, right? A, a common culture to help Alexander the Great advance his kingdom. Right? So, teaching a common language, common culture. Well, these Jews who'd been Hellenized were very much despised by those Jews who kept their cultural and linguistic and ethnic identity, the Hebrews. So what you have are some really, really, really spiritual Jews and some who are considered not so spiritual because they've been Hellenized. Two groups divided by language and culture. One church. Get it? You feel it? Tension automatically. But then, that one minority group is being overlooked in favor of the others. Whoa. Big problem. More than likely, this is not a willfully sinful, intentional thing. The text doesn't tell us. What it does tell us, though, however, is the Hellenists begin to complain subversively, undercover, injecting complaints. But regardless of the situation, regardless, there is potential here. And there is a potential issue that could rip apart unity in the fellowship. Because rather than ask a good question and make the need known, they begin to murmur in the dark. And a legitimate problem was not addressed properly by the people, and that turned into complaining. Do you see the process? Legitimate challenge. Not addressed properly, turned into murmuring. And boy, doesn't that sound like things that can happen in every fellowship? Sometimes it's not a legitimate problem. Sometimes it's just a moron who wants to have their way, and they just like drama. Drama equals like a play or a show. Drama is sowing discord. Drama. Drama kings and queens, right? People just want problems. That's not legitimate. 
But a legitimate challenge arises rather than address the appropriate people and situation. It turns into complaining. That leads to disunity and that leads to things breaking up and it never works out good for either party. So what do we do with this? A legitimate problem addressed in an illegitimate way. Here we go. We're going to really dive in here for just a moment. I want you to hear. We're going to hang with. We're, we're really going to submerge into dealing with this for the next few points. So hang with me. Listen, guys, it's everybody's job to obey Jesus, not just leaderships. It's everybody's job to obey Jesus. Do you hear that? It's not just your pastor's job to obey Jesus. It's everybody's job to obey the Lord. He who hears these words of mine and does them. It doesn't say those pastors who hear and obey build their house on a rock. No. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them are wise people who build their house on the rock, right? It's everybody's job to obey Jesus, not just the leadership. Matthew 18, 15 to 20 gives us an individual framework for dealing with sin. And we're going to unpack this in just a minute. It gives us a framework for dealing with sin. It does not give us a framework for how we're to handle our particular opinions about things. In this instance, in Acts 6, 1-7, Matthew eighteen fifteen had to be dealt with in regard to the complaining, not necessarily the overlooking of certain widows. When there's a sin issue, there is an appropriate way to handle it. And Jesus taught us how to do it in Matthew 18, 15 to 20. And I wasn't going to do this, but I just totally feel compelled. So if you would indulge me just a moment, turn to Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Because this passage, one, often gets misquoted. And how many have you heard this passage quoted when someone says in regard to low attendance? Right? Well, we're two or three are gathered in His name. He's there. The implication meaning... If you're alone, he's not. Negative. Because of the dwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer, if you are alone, under a tree, in the middle of backwoods Sahara, Africa. There's really no trees in Sahara, but maybe a brush something or another. In the jungle. The Spirit of God is present. Jesus is present. This passage here has everything to do with dealing with an issue of sin appropriately in the life of the church. Matthew eighteen fifteen to 20. Jesus tells us that if there's sin, it is responsible, it's the responsibility of the person sinned against to go to their brother and tell them their fault. If they don't listen, take a witness. And if they don't witness, take it to the church. If they refuse, treat them as an unbeliever. And then, Jesus goes on in verse 20 to quote the law. Where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst. And we, we take that passage and apply it to gathering of people in Jesus' presence. It has nothing to do with that. The law required in order for a person to bring an accusation against another two or three witnesses. Because you can't just like, you know, send somebody to their death or to prison with no witness. Right? Right? Thank you. It's in the manual. 
So Jesus is quoting the Scripture. He's already inspired, going, if there's sin, then make sure there's people who know and bring it there. And Jesus says, when you do that, I'm in your presence. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you take sin seriously, I will be present to oversee the process, bring people to repentance, and cause peace to happen. That's what that means. Right? So if there's sin, just obey Jesus. Just obey Jesus. Right? Just do what Jesus says. If there's not sin, be quiet. And if you have an opinion different from somebody else's, sit on it. Make sense? You tracking? Because peace and unity are more vital in the community of the kingdom than me and my way being number one. Paul will tell the church at Rome this, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. In other words, I am the least important person here. You are more important than me. Now, boy, isn't that contrary to the flesh? Isn't it? Right? Isn't it contrary to the way we want to function? Like, no, my way's better because I obviously read the Bible better than you. You're dumb. So listen to me. Right? That's often how we can come across. Because my opinion's superior biblically, right? Isn't that how we, it's easy to come across that way? If it's a sin issue, deal with it the way Jesus said to deal with it. If it's not a sin issue, it might be best to sit on it. Observation number three. What do we see? What does it mean? Verse two to six. Unity-destroying issues like drawing distinctions in the fellowship required a response that addressed the entire church and then divides responsibilities for effectiveness. The church is growing. The church is advancing. I mean, think about this for a second. You go back and do the math at this point, that's probably more because there's not a count, another count after chapter 5. There's 5,000 plus people in this church in Jerusalem. That's a lot of people. That's a lot. Bigger than any church in Roman Floyd County, right? 5,000 people. So when destroying issues, unity destroying issues, like this particular instance, drawing distinctions in the fellowship came about, it required a response that addressed the entire church and then divided responsibilities for effectiveness. Notice some things here. When the leadership were made aware of the situation that led to the sin of grumbling, they acted swiftly and decisively. When unity is at stake, it is the responsibility of your leadership to deal with it swiftly. Because unity is more vital than anything else. If there's sin involved, we obey Jesus' commands. If it's not an issue of sin, we shepherd people on how to keep their mouths quiet. The framework here is Exodus 18, 13 to 23. If you remember the passage? They've come out of Egypt, and the people are great in number, and Moses is left to judge them along, and his father-in-law says, This is not good for you or them. Find some helpers and divide the labor, bruh paraphrase right and so what does Moses do good idea so he begins to appoint people over the people who would oversee the work and make it easier if they had a case too hard they would bring it to Moses this is the framework for the dividing of responsibilities here in this passage 
It was necessary that the apostles devote themselves to preaching and prayer, not serving tables. And it is in no way demeaning to serve. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not that the apostles are above serving. As a matter of fact, the Lord set the example in John 13 where the Lord Himself washed the disciples' feet. The point is not that the apostles are above serving. They serve. They will serve. They will do hard time in prison. They will die for the faith. They serve one another. The point is here that the advance of the kingdom and their responsibility in it can't be taken up with doing the practical work that others could pick up and handle. Because what's happening is in this legitimate challenge, they're being forced to stop the advancing work of apostolic ministry and start making sure that the resources are divided equally. And what they found was here, this this issue is drawing distinctions, it's causing division, and we are not allowed to do what we are supposed to be doing. So therefore, the solution came about that they were to pick seven ministry leaders who had a good reputation, full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. And they would appoint them to oversee the distribution of food to the widows. And the apostles would devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Now, just let me say this for a second. You talk about hard not to just bear down and hang on this for a little bit. This is a place where a good, a good, 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 good preacher would just bear down on prayer and the ministry of the Word. And I'm not going to take a lot of time to do that because the point of the passage isn't prayer and ministry of the Word. The point is the preservation of unity. Got it? So we're going to spend most of our time there. But understand this, that preservation of unity will not happen unless the body serves and pastoral leadership spends time truly praying and truly discipling people from the manual. One of our problems in the West is we really don't want to give credence to things that aren't practical. That's because we're beset with the worldview of naturalism. We're beset with pragmatism as a worldview that says it's true if it works. It's true if it produces end results. That is just not true. It's not true. I mean, just think about it for a second. Jesus... Jesus' ministry didn't work out so well. On the front end, did it? He died on a cross, was buried. His followers were scattered in fear. Would we call that a success? Would you write a check to fund that mission trip? Right? Probably not. Prayer is legitimate, serious, neglected backbone of all gospel work. If it is neglected, you can expect that we will get what only we can produce with our hands. If we engage the Lord in prayers, He promised He would do, He will move mountains. With faith, the grain of a mustard seed, Jesus will build His kingdom. And it's evidenced in the life of people who pray. Again, my hero, George Mueller, cared for over 10,000 orphans in his life in prayer. Read his journals. The reason Mueller chose orphans isn't because orphans were innately. He says this with his own words, and it's offensive to our ears. But he said, it's not that orphans are intrinsically valuable. 
My problem is the people of God live in anxiety and don't trust the Lord. And so orphans are a tangible way to prove the faithfulness of God. Because in England at that time, they put orphans in prison. Because they didn't have anything else to do with them. And Mueller said, we'll care for them the way the Scripture says to us for to care for them, but we'll do it by prayer. And here's his point, to prove that God is faithful and answers the prayer of His people. He shaped His whole life on caring for orphans with prayer. And God did it. If we believed that, we would pray. We would put practical ministry aside and spend hours asking Jesus to do with His hands what I don't have time for. And the apostles knew this. So we... Listen, it's not that serving widows is not vital. It's that we have to call on the Lord if these widows are going to be cared for appropriately. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send forth laborers. Don't put up a sign and ask for laborers. Ask Jesus to send them. Isn't that what He said? And then I will send laborers to the harvest. You don't have to go recruit them. I'll do it. Just ask me. Do we believe Him? So what did they say? We're going to devote our time to being good, good stewards of the manual and asking Jesus to do His work. And part of that work is to take care of these widows. So what are we going to do? Well, they've got to be taken care of. So let's find some godly people and get after it. Right? I want you to note something that's vital here and how they dealt with this, though. Notice the love here. Notice the love. Remember, the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked by the Hebrews. Notice the names of the seven people they picked. They're Hellenistic. They're Greekified Jews. Isn't that awesome? They intentionally chose the minority group to care for all the widows in love to show the minority group that you're valuable to us. And so we'll put you in charge of the ministry. That's awesome. That's love, right? Let's, let's bring it to modern day America. The equivalent would be the African American widows were being overlooked in favor of the Caucasian widows. And so what we're going to do is we're going to appoint over the ministry all African American leaders oversee the whole fellowship and care for widows and submit to that. You feel that? That's the love shown here. That's the unity. That's the way they came at this issue. We are one in Christ. The hostile wall of division between Jew and Gentile, slave and free is broken down. We're one. And therefore, since we're one, these distinctions, we can't draw them. We trust the Lord at work in you. Notice the love. So what do we do with this? One, pastors, let's not neglect teaching and preaching and prayer. Make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. Church, this isn't in the notes. This is going to be free here. Ready? It is on you to serve. Sometimes people look at radical kids and they say, geez, man, it's just so intrusive. I have to work like once every six weeks. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Because the church is not a service provider. The church is the community of the kingdom of God whose mission is to disciple the nations, not provide comfortable goods and services for consumers. Right? 
It's an opportunity to love people. And I'm going to say something about this in just a minute. Because i got a practical example where it hit home for us. So church, serve. If there is a need, serve. If there is something that is needed, jump in and do something. Don't wait for anybody else. Understand this, church. Unintentional slights are going to happen. That's kind of part of dealing with a bunch of saints who have sinful tendencies getting together. Slights are going to happen. Some are small, some are large. Growth is going to cause this as it's easy to people, easy for people to be slighted and to fall into cultural tendencies because it's our default setting. Understand it's going to happen. But don't let slights turn into scraps. Ask good questions with a sincere heart to the appropriate person and handle each other in love. Expect that each other's intention is to love each other. Listen to me, I promise nobody in this fellowship walks in these doors with the intention to hurt anybody. Nobody's doing that. But you know what? We are. We're going to. So when it happens, don't receive it as though they were out for me. You know how Satan likes to work? He works in me like this. You ready? He likes suspicion. Suspicion is one of the great tools of the evil one. That when we're disconnected from the fellowship, it is easy to begin to receive correspondence, social media posts, and all the like from people that we're not in fellowship with as slights against us. And we begin to imagine that they're out to get me. That was intended for me. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Slights are going to happen. But understand, understand nobody's intention is to hurt one another. Ask good questions to the right people. Handle each other in love. That's a way to preserve unity. Sin against each other is also going to happen. We will sin against each other. If you do life together enough, you're going to sin against each other. Because we are saints who act like sinners. Until Jesus completes His work in us, we're still going to sin. Missing a problem in the fellowship is going to happen. Expect people to mess up. But Jesus taught us how to handle it. Now listen carefully right here. I'm going to dig in for just a second. I'm going to try to keep keep myself together. How we handle sin and slights. How we handle sin and slights. Will determine whether we intentionally preserve unity and peace. Or invite division and hostility. Matthew 5, Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is if we see sin or have been sinned against, not if we have a different opinion or a way of doing something. I've seen people use Matthew 18, 15 to 20 to address their opinion issues rather than sin issues. And every time you do that to a person over an issue of opinion, every time you do that to them, you begin to make them more and more wary of you. And it's really an issue of you getting your way than it is caring about their heart and how they're receiving constant, constant, constant feedback from you about how terrible they are. Matthew 18, 15 to 20 is if there is a sin issue, not a difference in opinion. Don't use that passage as a club to beat people up. It is the vehicle Jesus gave us to deal with sin so that He would work in a process to bring about Reconciliation, restoration, and issues of sin.
an understanding and generous heart with some thick skin and zipped lips for differences in conscience and opinion will lead to peace and love. You know that? It will. I'm not going to take time to read these passages because if so, it will really push us into too much time. Ephesians 5, 15 to 21. And if you're looking at the blog, you can see the passage there. I typed it out for you. Ephesians 5, 15 to 21, then 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 to 24. And just to be honest with you, the Lord completely is stirring in my heart to preach the 1 Thessalonians passage. And, and so I'm kind of trying to weigh the, we got a year and a half schedule that I work really hard on. And cause I, I am a somewhat of a planner. And so if there's a plan, but then there's this, go preach this passage. I'm like, Lord, were you working in the plan? What am I supposed to do? I'm going to not preach it now, but at some point this passage is going to have to be preached. But these passages are all about loving each other. Address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That doesn't mean sing to one another because that's really weird. Worship leaders never have us turn to one another and sing. If so, I'm out that back door that quickly. That is just weird. That's not the point is to sing to one another. The point is speak to one another in the fashion of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Encouraging, strengthening, Godward things. Make sense? Speak to one another in that fashion. Give thanks. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He didn't mean that. Couldn't mean that. Yeah, he did. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-24, Be at peace among yourselves. doesn't say, go trumpet your cause and make people mad. After all, it's an issue of truth. It is crazy how evangelical Christians can take an opinion issue, find a scripture passage that's obscure somewhere in the backside of Leviticus, and make it an issue of truth and club people with it. And think they're superior spiritually. And all they did was create division. Jesus was not in it. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. (laughs) Those, by the way, are all commands, not suggestions. They're in the imperative voice. Let me give you a personal illustration. One time early on in the life of our church, when Gabriel was two and John Mark was just born, it was tough. Mamas, this is one of the reasons we have a room for you with a TV and sound so you can hear and stay involved. And this this situation led to us having to figure out how to create radical kids. I was working multiple jobs because that's how you have to plan a church. Jennifer was raising two boys and managing apartments to supplement income. She's a hoss. John Mark was six weeks premature and he was a little little bitty guy. And he had some lung issues. And Gabe was struggling in the nursery we had at the time because of some lack of oversight. And, and so I'm doing the work of Sunday mornings. And my amazing wife is tasked with having kids. And by the way, I just want to say this. She doesn't miss. She's working. She's here. She's working. 14 years working. Because by the way, the church 
we had a year before we launched where we were building core groups. So we're 14 years old. We've just been meeting for 13 plus. She's been working all those years. She doesn't take Sundays off. And I just want to say, imitate her example. It's doable. So she's working hard being a mama, dragging children in. One can't breathe. The other one's struggling because of lack of oversight. I'm doing the work of Sunday mornings. And she's tasked with having to gather them up. Because we, we haven't driven to church together in 14 years. We can't. It's just not possible. It just is what it is. I'm not complaining. I'm just, it is what it is. It's okay. We're used to it. It'd be weird now if we drove to church together. I'd just be like, nah, you got to get out. Or I'm going to have to get out. This is strange. So my, my amazing wife's dragging up the kids, getting them there. I'm doing the work. She's trying to wrangle children. And mama's just hear me relax. We get it. We get it. We get it. It's okay. That's why you'll hear us make this little announcement. We've got a room for you. Relax. It's okay. And let me say to you, if you're bothered by that, please leave. Please leave. Go find you a place where you can receive a service from somebody and not have to be bothered with children. I'm okay with that. And if you're offended, I'm okay with that too. Because there are mamas in here who are struggling just to make it on Sunday mornings. And if that's you, I want you to relax. And know that it's okay and you're welcome. Okay? So just relax, mamas. It's all right. Rather than help... Rather than help, somebody spoke to another person about my wife and kids being a distraction. And rather than come and supply help to a struggling mama, they asked that third party to go speak to us about us. Wouldn't personally come and talk to us, sent a third party. That's not a sin issue. It's not a sin issue. It's an opinion issue. They had no clue, zero clue. That person would never reveal themselves, although we're quite sure we know who it was. Therefore, rendering any proper dealing with the issue not possible because the person who was sent would be betraying a confidence. You see the conundrum? That left us suspicious, hurt, and tension, and bitterness. Our life situation was not a sin issue. It was a station in life challenge and nobody was willing to help just criticize and complain. And it's taken 12 years to work through that and get more healthy than we were. And we're still not there. All over a non-sin issue. This is why we have to intentionally work toward unity. This is why when it's issues of opinion, sit on it and help somebody. This is why Pastor Jonathan, what he said is so true. Pay attention. Love each other. You see, unity requires intentionality in obeying Jesus, applying wisdom to any and every situation, and loving the other as they need to be loved. The golden rule. Matthew seven twelve. Not as we determine they need to be loved, Because that requires effort. It requires knowing each other. It requires deference and submission to each other out of reverence for Christ. Right? 
So therefore, church, it requires intentionality to maintain unity. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You see what they did here? Legitimate situation. An unholy response. And what did they do? They gathered the entire church. 5,000 people. I don't know how they got word out. They didn't have constant contact, email, text blast. How in the world did they do it? Like, I'm serious. <laughs> I want to know how y'all pull that off. Because that's a logistical piece of genii. I mean, that's awesome. Right? And they gathered together and said, Hey, this is an issue in which we can't stop the advance of the kingdom. But we've got to deal with this division. So you need to choose some people full of the wisdom, full of wisdom, full of the Spirit, good reputation, and set them over the work. And they set the congregation to figure it out. And you know what? That's why sometimes we say to you, help needed in the back, sort it out. Right? Because it's opportunity for you to sort it out and say, I'll serve. I'll submit to somebody in reverence for Christ. I haven't sat in service three weeks. I've been covering for people who are out. But I love to serve people. And I'm glad to do it. And they do it without ever saying a word. Never complain. Right? They called them all together. They met the need because they loved each other. And let's look and see what happened. I mean, did the church blow up? No. Observation number four. Look at verse seven. And the word of God continued to increase. Whoa. God gives us a reminder. He gives us a reminder in the text. They handled the issue. They dealt with it rightly. They submitted to one another. They submitted to the minority because Jesus is bigger and better. And what happens? The word continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's awesome. Because they intentionally fought to preserve unity, God made the word increase. I love that language. The word of God continued to increase. Like in that, that's straight out of Greek into English. There's no other way to translate that. The word increased. That makes me excited about the Bible. That if we faithfully devote ourselves to dealing with the text appropriately, God makes it increase. That's fun. Because you know what happens? God plants the seed of His Word in the hearts of His people and it produces the fruit of the kingdom. This is what I love about you. You guys are some of the most productive people on the face of this planet. What this church gets done is shocking and mind-blowing. People want me to write books about it and I can't because I'm not... Like, I can write a paper all day long. I'm not enjoyable to read. And I don't want to be one of those people who write things that nobody reads because what a waste of time, right? I'm a technical writer. I can footnote the life out of stuff. And I can footnote beautifully. I know Turabian, Chicago Manual style footnoting. Because it's the man way to cite a citation. No, 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 I'm a lay mess in my world. Uh-uh. I can write a technical paper. But it's not fun to read. I'm just going to tell the story. Because you hear the word. God makes it increase. And you go do amazing things. Why? Because I think we try to do what's written in the text. We try to obey. We try to maintain unity. The unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Love each other well. And God just makes the word increase. He makes the word increase. And one of the things God said to me this week in preparation. And it was the Lord. I know it was the Lord. And I didn't particularly want to hear it. But because it's something. Well, I'm not even going to say that. Because that's me excusing. I want more opportunities to preach the word. 
And as God gives them to me globally, I take them. Because I don't have to pray about whether or not God wants me to preach the word. That's duh. Alright? So I'm going to do that. But here's what the Lord gave me this week. I'm going to throw this out to men and women, all of you. I want you to hear this. And I pray the Spirit of God will speak to your heart. The Lord wants me to offer opportunity for some men who need to grow. They're young in the faith and need to learn how to disciple other men. Now, this isn't for people who've been in the faith a while and just want another Bible study. Okay? Men, hear me? Ooh. Opportunity to go deeper. Uh -uh. Uh No. If you're young in the faith and you want to know and learn how to disciple other men, I'll offer you a morning of the week, five of you, to come and you got to get up early. Same for sissies, okay? Get up early. Meet with me. We'll spend an hour. I'll teach how to disciple other men. See me. Men, do the same thing. Make disciples. Open the Word. Pray. Ask God to multiply and cause the Word to increase. Because as we make this, ladies, do the same thing. Five, 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 five ladies. Ladies, five, five ladies. That's a tongue twister. Ladies, find five ladies and invite them into your life and disciple them on how to disciple other women. This isn't Bible study five to go deeper. This is discipling people on how to make disciples. Can you imagine what would happen if we loved each other, stayed in unity, and everybody's making disciples? The number of disciples multiplied greatly. Notice the Bible chooses the language multiply, not added. Because 5 times 5 is 25, right? When everybody's making disciples, you will not be able to contain that kind of growth. The word of God increased. Disciples multiplied. And this is interesting. Priests became obedient to the faith. God did a work even among the religious elite. What do we do with this? Unity is a key ingredient to advance of the gospel. John 13, 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, comma, if you have love for one another. <laughs> if you have love for one another. Unity is going to require intentionality. A decision you have to make under the leadership of the Spirit of God to fight for unity and to put yourself in a position of submission to other people out of reverence for Christ. As the Lord gives increase, we will need to call you to action and you're going to need to put forward men and women to do ministry tasks. Pastors, our task is the word and prayer. Disciple men. And finally, church, we worship. We worship. I'm going to tell you my guilt story one more time because some of you didn't hear it last week. At camp, it's two weeks ago now, a young man who's working there is mute. And he works in technology. But when worship time came, although he cannot articulate words, he grunts as best he can in worship to the Lord Jesus. Christians worship because God is a singer and God writes music and God gave a song. And therefore, we use song as a means of making much of Jesus. And I watched this young man make much of Jesus as best he could when he does not have a tongue to do so. And then I come and I watch people stand stoically and won't sing for whatever reason. I want to say to you, do not stand before Jesus and refuse to sing. It's a sin issue.
It's a sin issue. Come before Christ and make much of Him. Some of us do not sing pretty, but we can scream sing. And so you ought to walk out of here hoarse because Jesus is worthy. And listen, look around you. God has brought unity in this fellowship. There is the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in this fellowship. And the ministry of this church is a result of that unity. And we have reason to come and worship the King of the universe. So don't miss that opportunity this morning. Psalm 147, one, praise the Lord. For it is good to sing praises to our God. It is good. It's pleasant and a song of praise is fitting. It's fitting to sing to the Lord. And we're going to do it, which is why they turn it up loud. Listen, this is you, if you're standing around that little corner, you'll hear me a lot of Sunday mornings walk by the sound booth and say, soft, bad, loud, good. Loud, good, because it allows people like me to scream, sing. So if you need to scream, sing, you're in my camp. It's okay. Just don't get in front of me. That's why I stand in the back. Loud, good, soft, bad. Stand and make much of Jesus. You were made for such. Let's pray. Father, for the glory of Jesus and the advance of your kingdom, I pray that you would make your name great today. Ask you to move in the hearts of your people to fight for unity and fight for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Pray, Father, today that you would cause your people to want to make much of you in song. That we would have the fruit of lips that bless your name. That we would not stoically stand in your presence and refuse to sing when there are those who can't sing and out-sing us anyway because their heart makes much of you. God, do that in your people today. May we make much of you. May we make much of you. May we make much of you. Father, I pray that you would knock down barriers of unbelief. I pray you'd knock down barriers of slackness. I pray you break down barriers of hard-heartedness. I pray that you create a tender heart for each other. I pray you make us sensitive to division and staunch defenders of unity. And Lord, may you make the word increase. May you advance the kingdom. Use this little fellowship for your glory, for our joy. We pray at the other campus right now that God, you would move in power that people would make much of you, that lives would be transformed and the kingdom would go forward. May this be to your glory and for our joy.